Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, March 21st, 2023. We live in what the Chinese euphemistically would call interesting times. We are, it seems in some ways at least, outsourcing our creativity, our artistic endeavors to machines. Google today released its barred uh, smart machine or smart algorithm for creativity, keeping up with OpenAI's GPT-4. Huge amount of controversy. Even Sam Altman, who um, is the instigator, shall we say, of ChatGPT, recognizes that... Um, it's complex to say this to, to say the least. One of Chat GPT or OpenAI's um, creative <laughs> algorithms is one called DALI, uh, which allows us to create art. And there's a great deal of controversy when AI can make art. What does that mean for creativity? And is AI created art really art? Um, it's interesting times, and it's particularly interesting that there's a new book out today, which doesn't really deal with AI, but perhaps some, has some implications in terms of who we are, what our brains are, and what all this means for our future as a species. Susan uh, Magsamen and Ivy Ross are the co-authors of a new book called Your Brain on Art, How the Arts Transform Us. It's a fascinating um, book, a fascinating premise, and I'm joined by both authors. I'm thrilled uh, that they're both talking. They're on the same camera, so I'm going to try and call on them. We'll see if this is a little chaotic. I hope their brains are on art. Uh, Ivy, let's start with you. Um, is it, do you think, coincidental that the work that you're doing, particularly when it comes to neuroaesthetics and new research on, on the brain. I know you're not really in the neuroaesthetics area, um, Susan is, but is it any coincidence that all this is coming to the boil at the same time as we seem to be inventing these algorithms that enable machines to become creative, to create art? Uh, it's the tension of the opposites, which I think is what makes the world go round. No, I actually think that... Um, we as humans are going to be pushed to use our imaginations even more than what we can imagine today as machines are able to do certain things. I'm not worried. I think there'll still be roles for us. I think some, we just don't know actually what our imaginations are now going to be able to be capable of. I think there'll be jobs being prompt designers, you know, to actually, what are the prompts that you put in will be really important to generate some of this art. So I see it as a very creative time, not as a threat in that regard, not as a threat to creativity. Uh, the, the, your your co-author, Susan, um, uh, sorry, your, your, Susan, uh, you teach at Johns Hopkins. You're part of a, a whoops, you're part of an institute called... Um, the International Arts and Minds Labs, which is doing interesting work. And you are one of the pioneers of a, a new, uh, I, I guess it's a new science called uh, 
neuroaesthetics. Explain what that is and how that fits in to your thesis in, in your brain is on art. Sure, sure. So neuroaesthetics is really how that we can um, measurably study um, arts and aesthetics on the brain and body. And we're particularly interested in my lab in how that gets translated into practice in health, well-being, in learning, and the ways that we move through the world. And so, um, you know, it's only been about 20 years that we've really been able to get inside our heads because of advances in technology. And we've been able to understand a whole lot more about how our brains and bodies change on arts and aesthetics. That knowledge, I think, is really fueling um, all kinds of discoveries around uh, prevention, um, child development, neural pathways, um, interventions using arts, and also thinking about arts for um, things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, but also flourishing and other activities. And so um, we're really, really in a very explosive new field of discovery, um, and it's highly interdisciplinary. So certainly basic science is involved, but also social sciences, public health arts practitioners, people with lived experience. So, you know, the arts affect so many parts of our brains that it's really an interesting um, challenge to think about this as solution science and how do you use this knowledge to go against trying to solve a problem. Uh, a few years ago, I saw the uh, Springsteen on Broadway and he was talking about his mother. He's obviously a big music family. His mother was a very passionate um uh, follower of obviously of his music and of music generally, he said that he, she was eight or nine years into Alzheimer's. And whenever she went over to his house, they would put music on mm. and it would have some sort of impact. Uh, what is the music, what is music's effect on the brain, particularly a brain, which I guess is damaged in some way? How, how does that fit into your, your thesis about your brain being on art? Yeah, so, you know, it is extraordinary. I always say that when you're with people with dementia or Alzheimer's and you're singing with them or listening to music and all of a the sudden they're present, it's the closest thing to magic. And for the person who is experiencing Alzheimer's or the family member or the caregiver, it really is extraordinary to have that connection where there hasn't been one. Um, so we know a lot about music and sound compared to other art forms relatively. It's the most studied art form. And, you know, music is vibrations, sound and vibration. And the way that, and certainly certain songs um, that are part of the kind of soundtrack of our lives are laid down, they're laid down through neural pathways, through um, highly salient neurotransmitters that are helping us to, to, to store that information initially in the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is one of the first um, parts of the brain that are damaged by amyloid and plaque. But what's remarkable is that when, after memories have been stored in the hippocampus, they're distributed through other parts of the brain and they're held in multiple systems. So when we're singing um, with our mom or our aunt um, or a friend that has Alzheimer's, they're actually recalling information, not from the hippocampus, but probably from the, uh, the, the auditory cortex or another part of the brain, a highly emotive part of the cortex, maybe in the limbic system. So it's pulling that information from another source. So, you know, simultaneously, multiple systems are engaged when we're laying down information, but also when we're retrieving it. And the brain has this enormous capacity for duplication. Um, and that's, that's 
that's really why we're able to um, use something like music in such a profound way. So it's really important to exchange your uh, favorite playlists with your loved ones. So I know Susan said to me, you and your husband, make sure you give each other, you know, your favorite music now. So God forbid anything should happen to us, it will be able to focus us. Well, what's your favorite, Ivy? What do you enjoy listening to? Oh, God, I have quite a range. Fleetwood Mac is one of them. Bruce Springsteen I love also. Are you going to go to the concert in uh, San Francisco in December? I Maybe now I will. I didn't mm. even... And what about you, Susan? What do you like listening to? So it depends on it depends on my emotion and what I'm, um, you know, really feeling. Uh, but it's really weird. I'm also uh, uh, I like all disciplines of music. Um, I love Pat Metheny. Um, I also love Amy Grant and Vince Gill. Um, Patsy Cline is one of my favorites. Um, I'm a Fleetwood Mac fan too, and Genesis. And you know, it really depends on. Um, I love some of the the work from. Lady Gaga. Um, but I think it's about emotion and tapping into, you know, I love a really good sad song. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Bonnie Raitt. Bonnie Raitt is by far oh, I, I top, like of my list. Yeah. top of my list. Top of my list. Yeah. She's great. John so you're the and 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 please excuse me if I'm wrong. Please correct me. Uh, your 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 book you've just come out with today, Your Brain on Art, How the Arts Transforms Us, suggests that in some ways, um, even bad art makes for good health. And we should think of art in the same way as we, uh, our, our consumption, if you like, of art, in the same way as we perhaps go to the gym. Well, the, going to the gym is good for our bodies and our minds. So yeah. looking at art or listening to music is good for our brain. Is that the core thesis in the book, one of you? Yeah, that you know, it, you don't have to be a good artist for it to have the powerful effects. I mean, I think one of the problems here is that as children, often we're shut down. You know, we will express ourselves through a variety of arts, and then judgment comes in, or we're told that's not the way you draw a tree, and you just don't even touch the stuff as an adult, or it becomes this very elitist, you know, art with a capital A. And what we're what finding. What do you mean by that, Ivy? Art with a capital A. <laughs> well, meaning there is, I mean, art with being the art that is in museums or that is. You mean uh, good art? I mean, art that is. You so mean like maybe Edvard Munch's The Scream or, uh, or Vermeer's The Lady in Blue, stuff that people actually want to look at? The famous, the famous works that. that well, they're famous because they're good, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, you know, we also have found out, by the way, that beauty is in the eye of the holder. And in terms of, um, you know, what what does good really mean in that I have my preference of styles of art I like. Susan may have different preferences. So that's why I couch it by saying what's in a museum may not be the kinds of things that I prefer to surround myself with. But essentially, the act of making or the act of beholding, and Susan can describe more about that, does the same thing almost for your brain. And so both of those things, it's why doctors are prescribing patients to go to museums or to take a nature pill and to really use the variety of arts to express themselves. Yeah, I'm really, uh, Susan, let me ask you this question. It's, it's fascinating in, in terms of neuro aesthetics. Um, Ivy brought this up, the idea, and it's very popular idea on the West Coast in San Francisco and in Silicon Valley where Ivy works, 
the idea that everything is in the eye of beholder and that we need to democratize everything. Is there something in the brain that makes judgments about aesthetics so that more brains perhaps are sympathetic to Vermeer's The Lady in Blue than some scrawl that doesn't make any sense? Um, or, or, yeah. or is aesthetic judgment, um, is that a process that takes place outside the brain? So uh, great question. Um, you know, there, uh, so there's some interesting work that's been done as humans. We all sort of settle on similar things. We think that landscapes um, are basically the same. We agree on the aesthetic value of landscapes, sunsets, sunrises. We also agree on the, the symmetry of faces. Um, and that's really important because, you know, you know, a smile mostly is going to mean something good. A frown might mean something sad, or you can see fear in someone's eyes. And those are things that are evolutionary and really about survival. But when it comes to things that are, are human-made, self-expression, we have very different understandings of how they feel and what they mean. And, and that's in part, be, in large part, because of the way that we are genetically wired, uh, our cultures, our life experiences, um, the way that we're raised. And so there's some really interesting work done by Anjan Chatterjee on something called the neural aesthetic triad. And this triad looks at three different variables that ultimately intersect in the center to create sort of an ultimate aesthetic experience for you. And that has to do with the way your sensory systems engage, the, your life experiences, and also what kind of reward or pleasure or emotional response so you have to that experience. So for example, the, the, the monk or the Vermeer, you know, you could imagine that people that are from um, different parts of the world may understand that to be um, beautiful or moving, but you could also understand that how it's moving for them would be different than how it's moving for you because of all of those, those experiences, those very individualized experiences. And there's a part of the brain called the default mode network. And it's the part of the brain that goes to work when you're not actively bringing sensorial information into your brain. And it's where um, decision, it's called the seat of self. And I, I love that term because it's really about preference. It's about likes and dislikes. It's about what you think is beautiful and not beautiful. It's where you daydream. It's where you um, mind wander. And it's really an important part of our identity and what we create over time. So when Ivy says, I love that piece of art, and I say, oh my God, I love that piece of art, there's probably some universality to it, especially the monk, which is about sphere, right? And there's a landscape. And so you could understand that we most, oh, yeah. we all might say, oh my God, I see fear and trauma and tremor because it's, it, it is very much um, mirroring the two things, landscape and face, right? But then right. The that's why in the, in the Wikipedia entry, at least on neuroaesthetics, we have the Mona Lisa. A lot of work's been done on the beauty and symmetry of the Mona Lisa in terms mm -hmm. of trying to explain why it's seen in such universal terms as the manifestation of, 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 be of beauty. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think that, this understanding and, and a lot of neuroaesthetics work early days was done on visual systems. There's now a lot more work done on auditory work and touch and smell. And um, so thinking uh, about being 
artwork, visual artwork, even things around color and, um, and texture. And I think that when you think about how do you take this information and you apply it to practice to very specific problems that you're trying to solve for, it all interesting there too. I'm curious, um, you guys uh, argued that um, uh, bad art even makes for good health. Could one reverse that though? Um, does bad health make for good art? Wait a minute, does bad, say that again. Does bad health make for good art? Oh. I mean, uh, when you think of Van Gogh, for example, I mean, much of the interpretation of his genius lies in his ill health. The same with Edvard Munch. Um, most artists throughout history have been driven by one kind of insanity or ill health or other. It's rare for them to be in perfect health. Dostoevsky is someone else who comes to mind. Well, isn't that about expressing yourself? I mean, the more you have inside of you to get out, almost, the more dramatic... Well, the think, art can be. Yeah, and I yeah. think so many people have been sidelined because they haven't been able to express what they, because they don't think they're good at it and there's so much social pressure not to create. But Van Gogh is an interesting example. You know, Van Gogh was not seen as a great artist. In fact, he was seen as a failure until his sister-in-law was the one that lobbied for him and said, this work is about emotion, right? Not good or bad. It's about this tactile quality of expression of depression at sometimes, but also of hope. And so, you know, I think you can broad stroke to say it's good, it's bad, but it's really about how does it move you and how did the artist have agency? And that's one of the things that good or bad as a maker, it's up to you what you want to create. And you don't, no one can tell you what to make or what you feel. And that's a really important thing. Uh, you know, when you're when you're told not to create or been shamed that your work is not good, it can shut you down. But the expression of what Van Gogh chose to share is a wide range of emotions. And I mean, I'm talking about this this morning. What do we have? Like 52, 34, yeah. something, 34,000 emotions. Like, you know, if you yeah, can get- Yeah, but I you in some yeah, ways I- transforming art into therapy. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but how are you even defining art? Well, great question. Um, we define art as creative self-expression, and there are many forms of creative self-expression from visual arts, expressive writing, digital art, singing, dance, dancing, humming, yeah. right. <laughs> talking like this. I mean, is this art? It's, People are yeah, watching it, I hope, anyway. Yes, it is. Yes, it is in the sense that this is an improvisation. I don't know what you're going to say. I don't know what I was going to say. She doesn't know what I'm going to say. You don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> and, and you know, at the best, conversation isn't, you know, shut up so I can tell you what I think, right? It's, it's how jazz. To- it's jazz, right? At the best yeah. American tradition. Oh, yeah. And the dad, they even in MFRIs, they looked at people's brains. It's very different parts of your brain that light up when you're improving like this than when you're actually reading something out loud or playing a piece of music. Um, there is an art to this. Mm-hmm. But you know, you go back uh, and look uh, at sorry, energy, go on, emotion is energy and motion. So it's for me, a lot of art or paintings, it's if that painting transmits emotion, which is energy and motion, I have a feeling. And that is, is interesting art to me. Is this a kind of, again, I, perhaps art as therapy or art as a, a kind of psychedelic as a, again, uh, Ivy, you know, this in, in text, psychedelic 
technology and drugs are becoming increasingly mainstream. I've got friends with startup companies around that. Mm-hmm. Um, are you presenting art as a as as a as as if not mind altering, certainly brain altering? Well, I think it's about getting out of our cognitive mind and getting into our body and into our sensory systems. That's what I think we're all craving right now, because I think we we have been optimizing for productivity since the Industrial Revolution, and we kind of pushed these things aside a bit. And I think you're seeing this attraction to a lot of psychedelics to have these experiences where we are out of out of our cognitive mind and in this other space. And so a lot of the things that alive in your sensory systems is what aesthetics are. Uh, Susan, uh, you're obviously a brain scientist, so this goes without saying, but aren't you placing the health of the brain above everything else? And is it, shall we say, the, the, the king of the body? Should we be as concerned with the brain as you seem to be? Well, I think the brain is really the gateway to so much, right? We bring the world in through our senses. And we talk, you know, we talk about the brain and body. And I think these are very interconnected um, systems. And so it isn't one or the other, but both. And I think when you when you really back up and think about it more holistically, I think your question earlier, I want to come back to about this idea that are we really trying to make art therapy or medicalize arts? Yeah. And the way, you know, when you see, when you go to a museum or you listen to a concert and there's pure enjoyment and, and, and just amazing um, transcendence, um, I think about that like when you, when you see the sun. Um, looking at the sun is brilliant. Understanding how the sun works means that you can then use that knowledge to help enhance other parts of the, of the world. So I think of the arts in our case as arts in service of humanity. And it may be child development. It might be community development. It may be being a better learner. It could be flourishing. And we haven't talked about flourishing, but flourishing is really beyond just coping. Or it could be helping with physical things, symptom relief, um, stress and anxiety, mental health issues. And so if we are so hardwired to bring the world in through these highly salient aesthetic experiences that we call art in all of its forms, and we can use those to amplify human potential, I think that's what we're saying, not medicalize the arts. I mean, I think it, it would be doing a disservice to what our brains and bodies do with these extraordinary gifts. You know, we're the only species that makes that that makes music or creates art the way that we're describing. I mean, certainly birds create nests and you know birds sing, but to create to communicate the way we're talking about is really uniquely human. Um, Ivy, there's a new fashion these days also for for wellness. Uh, how, how does that fit in with this? When when I think about this kind of conversation, sometimes Brave New World comes up. Obviously, uh, a dystopian warning by Aldous Huxley about a world controlled by Soma, where everyone is made cheerful. Uh, Maybe I'm repeating myself a little bit here, but is there a danger of that with your presentation of art, that art becomes Soma? The art becomes, what did you say? The the. The drug in Brave New World that cheers us up, that gives us, oh. that, that, that it in a sense puts us to sleep. I know that Susan 
suggested the reverse, that it brings us to life. Oh, I definitely agree that it brings us to life. I don't see how it could put us asleep at all. I think it transforms us and lets us know more of ourselves. I mean, puts ourselves back into ourselves, doesn't take us out of it. And so I think it is absolutely a great path to wellness, you know, with all this mental um, illness, even surpassing physical illness, it's extremely, and I think a lot of that is coming from people not expressing themselves, like micro traumas happening one on top of another, just being suppressed and held in. And so in some ways, part of the path to wellness is to be able to express yourself and release some of those traumas so that they're not ultimately turned into disease. This is not a new idea, but you know Aristotle talked about this many years ago, catharsis. And you know, many of the things that are used for arts are really about grief and trauma and loss, as Ivy was saying, and how do you transform those? How do you transcend those? So I don't think the opposite of um, grief and loss is necessarily happiness, but it's moving through a process of struggle um, that gets you to at least balance and maybe homeostasis. Um, and, and that's really important. You know, we have very few, few few tools um, available to us like these kinds of arts experiences that allow us to really live our full human selves. Um, and that's where I think we've left so much on the table. Yeah, you look back in ancient times, right? There was no word for art. It was storytelling, storytelling, singing, dancing, graphics, because that was life. That was just the way people lived. And we then kind of pushed that aside um, and so it, it's our birthright to do something. What do you mean we pushed? Uh, I, I'm not clear. Sorry, Ivy. We pushed what aside? Well, some of those art disciplines became less for everyone because I do think that we started to focus on a little bit the rational mind and productivity and the Industrial Revolution and these things that everyone used to do together sometimes or individually became nice to have not uh, you're, you're suggesting it sort of reminds me a little bit of jean-jacques rousseau that we were born creative or innocent and then we lost it all in society the industrial revolution and now we're seizing it back is that what you're suggesting a little bit i think we we need to seize it back yeah. i'd say a lot i'd say a lot <laughs> you know another good example is when sputnik happened in the 70s and the united states response to sputnik was we got to get down to business in schools, right? So that so the arts started to leave the schools, and now it is very hard to find arts in schools. Yet we know that when you're doing art, you're building social emotional bonds, you're building executive function, you're building creativity, you're building process, you're building all of these things that are how we learn, multisensory learning. That all left, um, and it left for all the right reasons, but it was the wrong decision. It was the wrong thing to do. And so, you know, I think there's been a lot of reaction to um, how do you uh, move forward as a society? And this nice to have versus have to have has actually diminished our capacity to be as robust and 
and dynamic a culture, and I mean worldwide culture, not only in the United States. And we're seeing that, um, you know, show up in, as Ivy said, mental health issues now with many youth, but also across the lifespan. Um, mental health is the single biggest concern that's higher now than physical health and also influences physical disease. Yeah, it's a really... Um... It's, 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 it's a fascinating subject because some people might argue um, that one of the consequences of the digital revolution, I know, Ivy, your day job is at uh, Google, is the destruction of the hierarchies of professional culture that maintained that sense of beauty. Others would argue the reverse. Um, how much is, Ivy, do you think the technological revolution bound up in um, in what you're writing about in this book? I think the technical revolution has made us more creative. I, I see technology as a tool, and I choose to see it as a tool to amplify our humanity, not take us out of it. I mean, look at just the fact that we can connect with other people around the world. Um, that's an incredibly creative act. I know I've, I've collaborated with people around the world I've never been able to do before. Um, also, you know, technology like VR, they're using it in hospitals for pain management. Um, digital games are being used for kids with ADHD. So, I mean, it's all, you know, it's a tool. It's how you use it. Well, let's end with a little bit more uh, about the book, Your Brain on Art, How the Arts Transforms Us. I know it's not just your theories, although you're both in your own ways remarkably distinguished. You talk to a lot of amazing people, E.O. Wilson, David mm -hmm. Byrne. Uh, the great opera singing, uh, the, the great opera singer uh, Rene Fleming. What did creators and uh, scientists like E.O. Wilson? How did they help inform the book? Well, you know, artists have gotten always been there first, right? Artists have always understood the power of the arts to to heal, to help us grow, to help us learn. And, you know, I'll talk about David and Renee just for a second. Um, so David, you know, is a real creator and he's all he's prolific in the work that he does um, during uh, at the end of COVID. David developed something called the Social Distance Dance Club, where he brought people together in the armory in New York and had them six feet apart dancing to both called music and, and improvisational music. And what he was able to see was that people started to find their tribes. They were mirroring each other. They were also dancing sort of individually. So it was this idea of both synchronicity, moving in harmony with each other, even though they were distanced. And then at the same time, how do we always need to be expressing our own identity? And um, he did something else called Theater to the Mind recently that is in, was in Colorado changing your perception. So when you change your perception, you change your world. And I think he's very been very revolutionary in bringing that forward. Also, you know, he's someone who was quite shy um, and he found music to be his way of self is expressing himself and connecting and ultimately then building greater relationships over time. So he's, he's walked this path as a person who was very introverted and also as someone who wanted to really grow and learn. And then Renee who's a beautiful, you know, beautiful singer, had tremendous stage fright, so much stage fright that she physically was in pain. And so she became interested in this work 
when she was trying to figure out how she was going to be able to continue as a performer because she couldn't, she was paralyzed with the pain. And she found that um, using different kinds of art activities, different kinds of breathing and singing exercises uh, helped her stimulate her parasympathetic nervous system and relax her. And so she became an advocate for this work and ultimately is helping to build this field called neuro arts through the NIH and the National Endowment for the Arts and other organizations, something called the Neuro Arts Blueprint, which is really involved in building the field. So, um, and then E.O. Wilson, uh, man, um, he was just a kid, a kid at heart. Mm -hmm. And he really helped us understand this area around um, what's called eusocial. We're one of very few species that need each other. We need each other to survive. And you might not think that the way sometimes the headlines show, but we are really um, connected to each other. So the ability to be able to express ourselves uh, creatively, as Ivy said, through storytelling and dancing is so important, the way we message each other. And that started very early on um, in, in the development of humanity. And he's traced that to this idea of uh, how do we do it? Art creates culture, culture creates community, community. and community creates humanity. Yeah, we well, were let's so end uh, with you, Ivy. You've been suggesting, I think, or, or maybe I'm putting words into your mouth, a, a renaissance, a cultural renaissance potentially in the 21st century. How Let's end with you. What would that look like, both in terms of the health of our society and of us individually? Well, besides exercising for 20 minutes a day that science has convinced us is good for us, which I think it is, and sleeping eight hours a day, we would be doing some art activity for 20 minutes a day, either making or beholding. Um, that would be my utopia, is to know that everyone was was doing that every day. And Susan, let's end with you then on this renaissance. Is it realistic as a brain scientist? Can we get there? I think we're at a paradigm shift where we can no longer continue on the path that we're on. And I think the science is proving it and will continue to have more and more findings as this work continues. And that's the nature of science, right? The nature of science is to continue to build testable pathways on how you move forward. So right now what we're saying is this is a whole new lane in the grocery store, like meditation, like exercise, like sleep, um, like good nutrition. And so um, I think it's highly probable there's more funding, both public and private, coming down the pike for this work. And I think people are really raw and really open to more meaning in their life, more sense of purpose, and more joy, which, by the way, um, how great is it? the arts are joyful. I mean, I think there's something that we leave on the table when we forget that. 